This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. This morning's reading of God's good and perfect word comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your minna has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your minna has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the minna from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Then they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you and just ask you to have your Bibles open there to Luke 19 as we continue on our journey to Jerusalem. Kind of excited the way our study is lining up. It's going to lead us right into uh, the story of the crucifixion on Good Friday and move us into the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday. But Jesus, throughout the Gospel of Luke, has been moving towards Jerusalem. And it's interesting in our text this morning, just before we pray, that Jesus gives a parable. And as he gives this parable, he's giving this because of wrong assumptions. So let's take a moment and pray.
Heavenly Father, we come before you, and Lord, we are so thankful for the grace that you bestow upon us, the love that you offer us in the person and work of Jesus Christ especially. We know, Lord, that every good gift comes from heaven, but we know that perfect gift is Jesus Christ, the Lord. We're thankful for him. We're thankful for his his loving response to our sin, that he was willing to take our shame, to go to our cross, to die in our stead. He hung there, bleeding on our behalf so that we could be covered in his blood and therefore declared innocent. The proof of this is seen in the resurrection, and so we cheer over the empty tomb. We're excited to know that our Savior lives and he now has ascended into heaven and he is there in his throne praying over his people, making intercession for us as we still struggle along in our daily lives. And Lord, we know that one day he will come back and so we have great hope and anticipation of his return. We long for the day when everything will be made perfect here on earth. And Lord, as we live in between, we know that We struggle. We have difficulty. Many in our own church are struggling physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And Lord, we pray for them knowing that you care for them and you've called your church to be your hands and your feet. And Lord, we pray that we would declare your word and that our faith would be placed in you and you alone. And God, we pray this morning that you would use your word to work in us, that we would be changed. We pray that each and every week, Lord, and we pray that this morning. We pray that we would not leave here the same people that we were when we came in. We pray that your word and your spirit would do his perfect work in us, changing us, conforming us more and more into the image of our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for my words that you would protect them. I pray, Lord, that I would not say anything more nor less than you've given me to say, but I pray that that you would be honored and your people uplifted. We pray this now in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. As I stated, as you look at this text, you see that Jesus is teaching this parable because. It actually uses that line in verse 11 on two occasions. It says, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Jesus is teaching a parable. A parable comes alongside. It's to aid. It's to help. And Jesus is teaching this parable because of the misunderstanding of the people. The truth of the matter is we often all have wrong perspectives. At the outset of the Civil War, the general consensus was that the Civil War would be over quickly. In fact, many volunteers quickly signed up, signing 90-day papers, expecting a brief and near-bloodless campaign. Yet as we often misunderstand, instead the war stretched on for four years and saw nearly 620,000 people die. It wasn't over at Christmas as many people expected. No, it went much longer than that. It was a hard battle, one that cost many lives. See, the expectations are often wrong, aren't they? And that's exactly what Jesus is up against here in Luke 19. We may ask the question, why? Why why were these expectations wrong? Well, first of all, understand that when Jesus came, Jesus did many signs and wonders. He showed himself to be the Messiah. 
He even, in fact, raised the dead. And many people were clinging to Jesus to be near him, to to hear him, to, to see his might declared. In fact, Jesus, there on his way to Jerusalem, actually was another testimony to his Messiahship. For they were told that the Messiah would ride in on a donkey. We know that as the triumphal entry of Jesus. Yet in all this, Jesus made it clear that their expectations were wrong. See, their expectations were for political gain. Their expectations were that the Romans would be defeated and that the Jews would now rule the earth. But that's not why Jesus came at all. Jesus came in a very different mode. Jesus came not to be conquered in the sense of flexing his muscles and showing the world his power. No, he actually came in a humble, as a humble servant. Even before his death, he would wrap an apron around his, his waist and wash his disciples' feet, to which they would reply, not me, Lord, not me. Don't wash my feet. Misunderstanding why he came. Jesus came to defeat a far greater enemy than Rome. He came to defeat the enemy of death and hell. That's why Jesus came. Jesus knew that his people did not understand his purpose, even though he announced it on multiple occasions. Therefore, Jesus offers this parable. This parable that we're told is about time and about purpose. Look again at verse 11. And when they heard these things, He proceeded to tell a parable because, notice this, he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. What's the parable that Jesus tells? It's that in verse verse 12 we're told of a nobleman who went into a far country to receive himself a kingdom. And then what would he do? He would return. It's about timing. It's about purpose. He uses a parable to display who he is, and why he has come, what his purpose is. The key point is about time. It mentions that the noble is going away to receive his kingdom. It mentions in verse 12, again, that that same noble will return. Friends, isn't that exactly true what is about Jesus? Jesus did come, and he came for the purpose of winning his kingdom. He came for the purpose of, of saving his church. He came so that he could die on the cross and resurrect. That was the purpose of his first coming. But we also know that he will come again. We believe Christian orthodoxy teaches that Jesus will come bodily. And so we believe, faithfully trusting in the return of Christ that is yet to happen. Jesus' coming is therefore in two parts. His first coming is called his inauguration. He came to die. He set things in motion. Yet his second coming is his consummation. That's when he will return to judge, when he will set all things right on the earth. Friends, the truth is, as Christians today, we're living between these two comings. We look back at what Jesus did do on the cross, and we celebrate that. We celebrate the resurrection. Every year at Easter, we make sure that there's a a time where we actually focus exclusively on the resurrection. But the truth of the matter is, each and every Sunday is a resurrection Sunday as we celebrate the power of Jesus Christ 
in our lives. And yet we long for and look forward to what he will do when he returns. Which one of us doesn't long for a world that is right? A world that is just? A world in which there is no more tears, no more death, no more pain? Which one of us doesn't long for the world which will come when Jesus returns? And so here we are, kind of caught in between. This really leads to the second part of why Jesus told this parable. Jesus told this parable because he was calling for his church to be faithful. Faithfulness. As we live in the in-between, we're called to be faithful. I'm a big history buff, and I think often about Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming in relation to World War II. In World War II, there was a big event, June 6, 1944, called D-Day. It was the storming of the beaches of Normandy. And it was important that we gain our entryway into France because as we gain our entryway as the Allied forces into France, we eventually could make our way to Berlin and destroy Germany and the war would be over. That D-Day was a big day. In many ways, the winning of D-Day marked the beginning of the end, just like Jesus' victory on the cross. Yet the truth of the matter is, if you've talked to the soldiers who fought in World War II, they'll tell you there was a whole lot of fighting yet to be had, wasn't there? There was a whole lot of warring that needed to continue. Their faithfulness was required to listen to the orders, to carry out the very descriptions of the orders they were given, so that ultimately what became known as VE Day, Victory Europe Day, could happen. The time in between June 6, 1944 and May 8, 1945 required faithfulness. It required attention. And so it is true for us as we live between Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and his second coming. It requires faithfulness. So I ask you this morning, how can your wrong expectations affect your faith? How can your wrong expectations regarding Christ affect your faith? Well, one way is we can get lazy, right? Another way is that we can become discouraged. We can begin to throw up our hands and say, Lord, are you even there? Do you even know what we're going through down here? We begin to struggle internally. We can become lazy in our obedience and faithfulness or we become discouraged in our faith and obedience. Yet this is why Paul wrote a letter to the first Thessalonians. In chapter 5, verse 6, notice what he says. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Keep awake, attention. Being attentive to those commands that we have been given. And that's exactly why Jesus gives this story, this parable to his followers. He has expectations of how he wants them to live in between. See, the master in his parable is going, but the master in the parable will come back. Now we're told that there were 10 servants who were each given a, a piece or a, a portion of wealth, a minya. 
And, and we're told that they were given that, and which would be worth about a several, several months' wage. And they were given this by the master to use to gain the master's advantage. It's interesting, as we're told that the first of the servants who is given this minya, he gained 10 more minyas. That's basically a 1,000% on his return. Which of you would not like a 1,000% of your investment? Right? Especially right now. <laughs> Who would not want a 1,000% on your investment? And so notice Jesus' response to this one. Well done! Well done! Superb! Excellent! Fantastic! What I love about that is it shows Jesus gets excited when his servants do the right thing. And we should know that, that Jesus gets excited in our obedience. Jesus isn't just sitting up there just expecting us to do it. He, he cheers us on. He's excited in our obedience. And I'm the father of three. I'll be honest, I get excited when I hear my children doing the right thing. I get excited when I hear them reading their Bibles or I hear them sharing their faith. How much more does our father in heaven get excited when we do the right thing? And so there's great joy in pleasing Jesus. Well, this wasn't the only one to do the right thing. We're told that the second did something very similar. He gained five minyas for the one minya he was given. Now, again, that's not quite the 1,000% return, but that's 500% return. Again, which one of you wouldn't want 500% return on your investment? All of us would think that's fantastic. And again, we see that each of these was rewarded for their faithfulness. The first, he was given 10 cities because of his faithfulness. The second, five cities because of his faithfulness. The joy it must have brought them, not because of what they got, but because of the pleasure it brought their master. See, the truth is, each and every one of us is called unto good works. Dr. Mark Jones talks very frankly about this. He says, what we do reflects who we are. Let me say that again. What we do reflects who we are. He also points out this. God honors what we do. One of the examples he uses in his book um, is this, Matthew chapter 6. He says, and your father who sees in secret will do what? He'll reward you. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. Friends, I know that that particular text is actually talking about prayer. God who sees us in secret will reward us. How much more when we do things publicly <laughs> and we're honoring him publicly, unafraid to make sure that Christ is set forth in his glory. Now I know for a lot of us, we wrestle with the idea of good works. Isn't that the thing that other religions do? Isn't that the thing we're pushed away from? Now it's true, we're saved by grace. We're not saved by what we do. But the truth is, many of us then begin to think good works don't matter. We begin to fall into the idea that ultimately it really doesn't matter how one lives. That's a bad doctrine. It's called antinomianism. Basically says you can live any way you want. Do whatever you want. You got your free ticket to heaven, you're good. Friends, that's not what the Bible teaches. The book of James is very clear. It says faith without works is what? Dead. Faith without works is dead. One of the old dead guys I like to read by the name of J.C. Ryle says it a little differently. 
He says, our title to heaven is all of grace. Basically, your entrance to heaven, your, your, your ticket to heaven is all of grace. Our degree of glory in heaven will be proportioned to our works. Meaning that there will be rewards. In fact, we're told that in the book of Revelation. Now, I know when we receive the rewards, what do we do with it? We cast it back at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because we're able to do what we do only because of him. But notice, there is a calling for obedience and there is clearly a teaching of rewards. Our own confession of faith teaches this. In chapter 16 of Good Works, we're given a definition of good works. Listen to what it says. Good works are only such as God has commanded in his holy word. Good works are only such as God has commanded by his holy word. We're told what God wants us to do, and those are the things we should be about. Just like in the parable, the servants were told what to do to invest. But then we're also told in our confession of faith that there's a blessing for good works. Listen to this. These good works done in obedience to God's commands, that's what he's told us to do, are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, show their gratitude, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren. We encourage one another in our obedience. We adorn the profession of the gospel and we stop the mouths of the adversaries and we glorify God. There is so much blessing in doing what we've been called to do. And what is the source of these good works? Our confession answers that as well. It says, the ability to do these good works is not in our, all of ourselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. That's the blessing that God has given us. The inheritance, the down payment is the Holy Spirit working in us. That's why we pray on Sundays asking God to do what? To change us. Help us be more obedient. Help us to have ears to hear and hearts to receive. The grace of God working in us. And yet we know these good works are insufficient to salvation. For it says we cannot, by our best works, merit pardon of sin. We can't be saved by what we do. I don't want anybody walking out of here this morning saying, Aaron taught that we're saved by good works. I never said that. Okay, if you hear someone say that, hold them accountable. I didn't say that. But what I am saying is there is great blessing and great reward for obeying the Lord. Listen to what it says in our final section, section six that I'm going to read of good works. It says, the persons or believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in him. He looks upon them, meaning the good works, in his son. It pleased, he is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. I think about as a little boy when I would bring home a project from Sunday school for my mom. I was thrilled. I had colored it with just every color I could find in the crayon box, right? I had glued it on, and even though the glue had gotten all over my hands and my face and I even probably tasted some just to see what it tasted like. When I was finished with that project, which was probably pretty crumbled up, I took it and handed it to my mom, and you know what? She accepted it with joy. And the good news of the gospel here is Jesus takes our feeble efforts and makes them perfect in him. 
Good works matter. But the question for each of us is, are we seeking to be faithful in our good works until the Lord returns? Or have we gotten lazy? Have we gotten discouraged? Friends, only you can answer that question for yourself. Have you gotten lazy in your pursuit of good works? Have you gotten discouraged in in trying to serve the Lord as you look at the world and it seems to be going the wrong way? Or are you truly trusting him and believing in what he said, that he would be returned and he would set everything right? Well, there's a message here at the end of this parable that's important for all of us, but it's really found in the middle. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, we're told of a group of people who are against the master. It says, but the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. We don't want this leader. We don't want this individual. Friends, understand that this picture is a picture of the Jewish leadership who protested Jesus. Now, they were outside the band of disciples, but they were religious. They should have known better and they rejected him. But you know what? They weren't alone. The Romans got on board and actually helped to crucify Jesus. Jesus had many enemies who did not want this man to rule over them. But the problem isn't just out there. The problem is also in here. And I'm not just talking about First Pres. I am talking about the local church all over the world. Remember the three servants come back of the ten? We only talked about two. It's that third servant who is inside and is counted as a disciple. He's given a minya just like the other disciples were. And yet, as an insider, he does something detestable. He wraps it up and he keeps it. We must remember in the church, the visible church, Not the true church, not the invisible church, but the visible church, the church you see, the people you sit with is mixed with both sheep and goats. We must remember, as Ralph Davis says, he says, not all of Christ and his enemies are outside. Any number of them are inside the ranks of the servants. Therefore, this wicked one in the church lost more than his minya. He actually lost his own soul. Church, the third servant hid what he had been given. And the reason he hid it was this for this reason. He didn't truly know the master. Listen to what he says. Verse 21, I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Do you hear it? He views God as a judge. Now, in the, more, in the parable, he's viewing his master as a judge, as a, as a wicked judge. But how many of you got in that same framework? God is just a killjoy. God is just mean. God is just vicious. And so, therefore, I'm just not going to do anything to offend him. I'm just going to keep what he's given me and hold it. He misrepresents the master, though, doesn't he? He's forgotten how gracious his master was in the first place. His master is the one who gave him the minya to start with. How often that's forgotten. See, the truth is, in many ways, if we're not careful and we're not on guard of our own hearts, we can fall into the same wrong perspective and forget that every good gift comes from God. If we're we're not careful, we'll begin to believe that everything we have is what we do with it. 
It becomes man-centered. It becomes us. And we forget that ultimately everything we have is really from the grace of God. And so what's the result? Well, the master condemns the wicked servant using his own words. I go back to what, what Ralph Davis says. He says, therefore, this wicked one in the church lost more than his own minya. Listen to what it says in verses 22 and 23. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. I think that's what you said, right? That's what he's saying there. I think that's what you said. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I would have at least collected interest? The very minimum, just take what I've given you and throw it in the bank rather than leave it in the handkerchief. Why did you at least not do that? Friends, unfortunately, there are many in local churches all over this world who are this wicked servant. They have a wrong view of God as being harsh and unloving, and truly they have too high view of themselves. In the end, it costs them. There's a loss. Look at verse 24. He says, take the minya from this wicked servant and give it to one who has ten. In protest, he says, Lord, he already has ten. But in response, in verse 26, he says, I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. It's because God's grace is what gives us anything. And God wants to honor those who honor him. Finally, we come to a very hard line in verse 27. I'll be honest, it's one I wish I could just skip over and we could close our Bibles and walk away, but the Bible forces us to talk about the judgment of God. Wouldn't be a good preacher, and nor would you be a good faithful follower of Christ if we just didn't talk about the judgment of God. The judgment of God is real. The judgment of God is coming. Listen to what Jesus says in this parable. But as for these enemies of mine, both outside and inside the church, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Friends, all of God's enemies will be judged. Friends, judgment is promised and should never be taken lightly. Listen to just a few verses. 2 Thessalonians, beginning at verse 7 of chapter 1. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day, he will be glorified in his saints and will be marveled at all among who have believed. Or how about 2 Corinthians 5.10? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Or how about Revelation 22.12? Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Friend, these are hard verses. I wouldn't be a very good pastor if I just ignored them. There are many that wish to talk just about universalism, that everybody goes to heaven in the end. But friends, that's not what Scripture teaches. It teaches us the importance of knowing and trusting in Christ. We can't have a wrong perspective of God or it could doom us to hell. We need to believe what the Bible preaches and teaches. We need to submit to God's authority. And we need to recognize 
all that he's already done on the cross and will do when he returns. Friends, judgment of God is real. And if it is ignored, it only brings one peril. The question before each and every one of us sitting here is this. Am I a faithful servant? We all need to take inventory of our own faithfulness. For that faithfulness shows our love for Christ. That faithfulness shows our heart condition. That faithfulness shows our faith if we're truly believing. That's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, these words. Whoever sows sparingly also reaps sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully also reaps bountifully. Friends, may we truly be having our faith strengthen and encourage as we trust in Jesus Christ. May we not get lazy. May we not be discouraged. But may we walk in the faith of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close our Bibles, as we step away from this parable, as we're reminded that sometimes our perspective is just wrong, help us to be mindful of the fact that Jesus has come and he's coming again. And as we live in the in-between, may we be faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. God's people said. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.